first and foremost, thank you all for joining us and appreciate you taking your time out to listen to, <laughs> listen to me for a little while um, before we get going. I don't know what you first thought when I saw the poster for this being called um, Leaving Behind the Imaginary God. It was deliberately provocative as a title. That's how I try and draw people in with a little bit of controversy. But this evening could easily have been called Encountering the Real God. And the reason behind that is I was inspired to do this topic um, as I was sat in a discussion on Zoom, actually, a few weeks ago. The philosopher I kind of follow, because you can follow philosophers online now, which I, <laughs> I enjoy doing. Um, and he was talking about this topic of the imaginary, the symbolic and the real, which is based on the work of a, uh, a psychoanalyst, a French guy called Jacques Lacan. It's quite dense and quite heavy content. So I, my job really is to give you as brief a time as possible of introduction using this psychoanalytic theory. Um, I'm going to try and explain why I think it's important. Essentially, what I'm going to try and do is use that theory to open our eyes to a way of seeing our faith and how we view God. And hopefully that will come together <laughs> as I go on. Uh, I also want to begin by clarifying that the particular terms, the real and the imaginary, have other connotations, which when we're talking about God can be slightly more significant. Just a reminder that I'm using those terms in a technical sense, so it's not, I'm not saying God is imaginary or real, or someone's interpretation of God is one of those. I'll explain along the way what those terms are meaning as I'm using them. So uh, Jack Lacan, this psychoanalyst, he was a structuralist which, as you can imagine, essentially means that underlying most of his work was this quest for what is the underlying structure of things, of life, of what we do. So his work around the imaginary, the symbolic and the real was looking at what is the structure of the human mind, the human psychic structure. He actually worked on that in different stages. He first worked on the imaginary, and then after a few years on that, he developed it to incorporate the symbolic and finally to incorporate the real, which is where he sort of his work finishes. So the imaginary is otherwise known as the realm of images. Uh, in the development of the human mind, it comes as a kind of an infant between maybe six and 18 months in a clinical sense. But more generally, as infants go through what Lacan calls the mirror stage, those of you with children, grandchildren, be familiar with very young children, learn by mirroring, they copy what they see. But also within that, in the development of their minds, they begin to see themselves and understand themselves through what they see and through the others that they see. So the, the imaginary order or stage represents the creation of the self, the understanding of self and the I, as well as this, it's about the time they begin to mimic others. The idea behind the imaginary is that the realm of what we see. So we see ourselves in others. And in other words, in order to understand ourselves, we must first look outside ourselves. That's one of the basic principles of the, the imaginary stage. It's not just limited to infants. We carry it through with us into our lives. As you can imagine, with it being centered on the self or the I, it comes up in adult life in in selfishness, selflessness also, and particularly issues around self-centeredness, self-awareness, self-consciousness. One example I read quite a lot was body image, how we view our body in relation to the bodies of others we see, but also, I mean, that can go as far as comparison in any order. We see others and we assess it by our own self and how we identify those things. Essentially, a lot of adults, still deal with issues from the imaginary order. 
be that comparison, body image, material wealth or status that we might envy or desire. It's all tied up in that imaginary stage. When it's selfless, however, it can be very empathetic. As you can imagine, if you're seeing yourself in the other, if you see pain, we feel the pain of others. We begin to identify what we see in the world, associating the experiences of others with ourselves. So it's, it can be a, a good thing in that sense. It allows us to empathise with the suffering of others, the joy of others. We can share in, as we see others experience things, we can share in that with them. The next stage from the imaginary is the symbolic. So this is when we begin to understand ourselves as separate from others, whereas the imaginary was we see ourselves in others. Now the symbolic stage is where we begin to separate ourselves from others. If the imaginary creates a self, the symbolic creates the other. So no longer is it self everywhere we are. We begin to see others as different from us. We understand our place in the world when there are multiple others begin to see that there are roles we play in regards to one another and we begin to understand our place in the world. It's also the time of giving prohibitions of rules as well as the importance of signs, so things which symbolise meaning become very important in this symbolic phase. It brings structure and law for the child, it's the learning of behavioural routines and norms, where you're allowed to do what you're not allowed to do. Um, some examples might be meal times. This is when we eat. If you're toilet training a, an infant or a child, that's they, kind of, they learn those structures. Don't touch that. Do do this. There's another example. I mean, in a slightly more familiar setting, maybe. Well, maybe not more familiar, but in the story of the Garden of Eden, we see this with the where once Adam and Eve walked with God together. After a while, there is the bringing of a prohibition: do not eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is where we find structure in our world, we begin to understand more, which requires more structure to hold it together for us. The final stage then is the real, which is maybe the hardest to understand and certainly the least clear, even those who do understand, uh, it's the least clearly explained. But Lacan describes it as being that which language cannot express and which resists symbols. Kant, who was a, another, he was an influential philosopher in the Enlightenment age, he said that it's uh, that which we don't or can't access out there. And then there's a Paul Tillich, who's a philosopher of religion. Uh, he spoke about it in a religious sense where he said, um, essentially it's an understanding of God, which, of a God that can't be grasped. So in essence, it's something that's outside of ourselves that we can experience within ourselves. Where we meet it varies, but it's an experience of something beyond ourself and our understanding of the other. So, well done for getting that far. I don't understand half of what I just said in some senses, so I appreciate sticking with me. Big question then is, what has all this got to do with God? Well, I believe when I was listening to that, it made me think, I think our view of God can be located in a similar way and that it goes through similar processes. The God of our infancy, be that a literal childhood or kind of spiritual infancy, is often a God who's just like us, but bigger, better, faster, stronger, many of the same characteristics of us. We see God as presented quite often on TV, particularly for kids' cartoons, whatever, as this big man in the sky. That's a classic kind of imaginary picture of God. Of course, later in our journeys, we might discern that to call God big is not really accurate because he's beyond measure. Size doesn't really apply to God. So God as a man is, is not really accurate either because God is not human. God is God. And that's a, a limitation we've put on him with language. And 
say God is in the sky is again fairly inconsequential because what we do know of the heavenly realms or God's dwelling is, is very different to a simple big man sitting in the clouds with harpists all around. So essentially, uh, at the early stage, just like the imaginary order, we might find it easier to understand God in terms of what we already know. To consider God as beyond our understanding, as the Bible describes God, um, can be a real challenge. A typical progression from the imaginary God then becomes a symbolic God. This view of God is tied up in God being the giver of prohibitions, the, the lawmaker, rule setter, a separate being from us. And we find our role in relation to who we understand God as the other. So the church across a lot of history really embraced this symbolic picture of God. The more traditional church, particularly the, the Middle Ages um, up to the Reformation, was structured heavily with symbolism. The priest would be the rule enforcer, God's lieutenant on the ground to make sure people were sticking by the laws, providing the structure, the interaction of worship or services was very structured. And there's great value placed on things that are deemed sacred or holy, um, ranging from the holy water to the stained glass windows in church buildings, from the robes the vicar wears to the clothes of the parishioners going in. What once were the relics and the idols of the of the old church have evolved, but they're, they're no less. They they're still, they're still are in a symbolic order of seeing God and understanding God. And a lot of people live in that space. They're, it's it's easier, it's more comfortable when you understand your place in the big picture. And it can be scary to step out of that symbolism. Now, I really love the fact that the Kant's psychoanalytic language is the real, because when we use it to think of God, to me, it speaks of a deeper, more personal relationship with God, which I've come to know. I think there's a step beyond the symbolic God where we find authentic relationship with God. We are, of course, able to have relationship with God in both the imaginary and the symbolic sense. And many people do, as I say, people are happy with their understanding, their picture of God, and will live for years and years, lifetimes, um, with a set view of God. But I believe and my experience would say that there's always deeper to go and more intimacy to go into with God and to understand new things every day if we choose to. We see this challenge in the life of Jesus and those who knew him, particularly thinking about the idea of Messiah that the disciples held on to. I think they probably were inherently imaginary in some senses. As Jewish people, they, they would have been very familiar with the idea of a Messiah and they would have had a firm picture of what that Messiah might look like. I mean, every Christmas we go through the same talk, essentially, where we talk about the picture in the Old Testament of this Messiah who's to come, the great King of Israel, the defender of the weak. He's going to deliver his people. And yet we're confronted with this baby who's a king without a palace. He seems weak and defenceless in his crib. The imaginary image of the Messiah that they grew up with, that they held on to, was challenged as Jesus arrived in the world. In fact, later on in Jesus' life, Judas, Judas who betrayed Jesus, was widely believed to be a zealot. Uh, now the zealots were basically working to incite rebellion against the Roman Empire. They wanted to take down the empire and reclaim the land, as I understand it. And a zealot understanding of the Messiah would have entailed that rebellion. They would have looked for a leader to take down the, the emperor, a king, to take over the kings of earth. And yet we see Jesus had no clear intention of that earthly rebellion. What he had to bring was evidently a rebellion and 
a revolution in many senses, but he didn't usurp the political system in the way that the zealots of the day might have thought. This kind of imaginary god that zealots might have built up, that Judas may, may himself have had. There's no wonder he could have been disappointed to see how Jesus preached love and peace rather than war. Pharisees, on the other hand, um, were evidently caught up in the symbolic gods. They, they saw themselves commonly as the ruling forces. They were checking up on everyone. They were not only judge, jury and executioner often, but in relation to Jesus, they would try and enforce on him his own laws. And, well, you'll, I'm sure, know enough of the Bible to know how Jesus got on with the Pharisees. So what about the real God then? Well, I mentioned earlier, some would say that this is an understanding of God that's beyond our understanding. An acceptance that any language or symbolism we have for God only limits him, only limits our understanding of God. The real God is that which is outside of ourselves, it would say, that we encounter within us. For me, this language immediately brings to mind the Holy Spirit, God's presence living in us, being with us. We encounter something that is entirely outside of ourselves, but deeply within us. So it seems to me that in order to move from one stage to the next, we need to be willing to leave behind the understanding of God that we held on to. And in some areas, this will be uh, an imaginary God. Some areas, this will be a more symbolic thing. I think we need to take time, as we're doing tonight, to look at what we really believe, try to work out where those beliefs grounded, whether they uh, are helpful for us, whether they lead us into deeper faith, and begin to challenge one another and ourselves on how we view God.